Good evening, and thank you again so much for being back with us tonight. I invite you to open your Bibles with us to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, and we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 3 tonight as we continue on here in our series. There is uh, actually one more lesson after this, but looking at the preaching schedule in the back, I'm not going to be here for quite a while. Um, And so if you all want... um, I'll make a quick note of this. If you look on Danville's website, DanvilleKYChurchOfChrist.com, the last lesson is called Choosing Joy, and it was November the 15th of 2020. So if you want the last lesson in this series that kind of puts a bow on a lot of these things, then, then that'll be it. But tonight's kind of the next to last lesson as we look in chapter 3 at the idea of a prayer for revival. And when we think about what all we've, we've talked about so far in this faith, trying to find calm in the midst of chaos and trying to understand how our faith protects us through these things and trying to find that peace. We've gone through a bunch of different ways to look at that. We looked at the faith paradox. We looked at God's mysterious ways. We've looked at uh, our stopping and calming ourselves, the judge and the just, the trinity of positivity this morning. And and tonight, what I want us to focus on is that all of this has to mean something. All of this that we go through in trials, when James says to count it all joy when you experience various trials, the reason why James says that is because of the next verse. The idea that these trials, the trying of our faith, produces patience. And if we're going to go through the chaos, if we're going to go through the storms, if we're going to go through the difficulty in life, I kind of want to get my money's worth, right? If I'm going to go through this, I want to be better. I want something to come out of it that makes me better for having to go through that. You know, it's like I don't want to not eat carbs for six months and still be fat. You know, if, if I'm going to do things that I don't like to do, I, I need some results out of that. And I think when we look at the trials, when we look at what we've been through, whether you're, we're talking about the pandemic, whether we're talking about economic events, whether we're talking about difficulties we go through in life, heartache, tragedy, loss, whatever it is that is your storm that you've been through, we've got to come out of it better. Otherwise, why would we go through it? And I think that starts with a prayer for revival. And the idea of revival is to revive us, to make us stronger and better than we were before. You know, we we have these uh, meeting, gospel meetings that that we call them, right? Where we we invite in a speaker and and they preach. And we talk about gospel meetings and, and that word comes from, you know, they would preach the gospel at these tent meetings, and you invite everybody in town to hear the gospel. Sometimes you hear that same meeting called a revival, that we bring somebody in to help stir us up to love and good works, that talks about specific topics, or to set us, give us energy to continue to move forward with the direction. And I think about that idea of a revival, is the idea to get us back to where we ought to be. And when we think about what the nation of Israel went through, they had to have various periods of revival, right? We have the cycle that they go through. And whether we look at that 
I'm going to use the example of the judges cycle, but the same thing happened with the kings and the same thing happened with the prophets. But what happens with the nation of Israel, right? They start doing well for a while and they're prospering. And they're drinking from wells they did not dig. And they're living in houses that they did not build. And eating off of vines that they did not plant. And what happens? They get to doing so well that they forget where all that stuff came from. And they're doing so well and they're prospering. And they decide to start oppressing the poor. They decide to start making idols and giving the idol all the credit. And God says, enough of this. And he sends somebody in. He sends in the Philistines, and he sends in the Assyrians, and in this case, he sends in the Babylonians. And the nation gets punished for their wicked ways. And in the depths of their despair, somebody finds a book of the law, or somebody remembers, hey, there used to be this God that took care of us. And they start having conversations, and they remember, and they cry out and say, oh God, we've been oppressed, things are terrible, and you are the answer. And God sends a deliverer. And he'd send a judge or a king or a prophet. And they would stir them up. They would revive the people. And the people would stand courageously and remember God. And then they'd do better for a while. And then they wouldn't. And they'd forget about God. And the cycle just kind of happens over and over again. And along the way, the deliverances get a little worse. And their cries get a little worse for wear until they end up in full-blown captivity. Both the Assyrian captivity and, in this case, the Babylonian captivity. But even here, even in the midst of what is going on, there is still an opportunity for them to be better. We touched on this a little bit this morning when we look ahead. and we, We've got the benefit here of time, right? We know this story. We can look through and see where the revival played out that we're going to look at a Habakkuk's prayer for tonight. And we see where 70 years after captivity begins about how they go back and they rebuild. And we see that because of the revival that takes place in the midst of this chaos, we have young men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And because of their influence, we have Queen Esther. And because of Queen Esther's influence, we have Nehemiah and Ezra that go back and lead the people. And because of all those dominoes that fall in place, we have the future of where the people are and how they come back to Jerusalem and how at the appropriate time Christ comes. But all of these things are working together. So I want us, let's go to Habakkuk chapter 3. And I want us to read these first 16 verses together. And let's listen to both the prayer of Habakkuk here. And, and I want you to listen to how he's praying and what he's praying for. And we're going to draw some lessons out of that. Starting in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to whatever his name is. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. 
Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, and he looked and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode in on horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. And you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed and writhed. The raging rivers swept on. The deep forgave its voice. The deep gave forth its voice. It's, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced his own arrows, the, heels, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound and rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So this is incredible to think about all that the prophet Habakkuk here prays for. Now remember, our whole study here of, of understanding ways to find calm in the chaos, understanding how to find the peace that surpasses all understanding, is really just trying to understand Habakkuk's life. And trying to understand what decisions he made when he went through these things. Now Habakkuk had gotten the difficult news that this was coming, that calamity was coming, and he argued back and forth with God, but here we find him in chapter 3, accepting of what was going to happen. But notice that his acceptance of what is going to happen is met with his looking for the good. Looking for a way to move forward. Looking for a way to revive the people from where they were. To come out of their wicked ways and to remember the God of mercy. So when we think about the idea of revival, the idea of getting better out of the chaos, the first part of this is actually praying for this revival. The first part of this is actually talking to God about it. Prayer is one of those things that has always been kind of challenging for me to wrap my mind around. And it's challenging because of the way that some of us look at and view prayer. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people say, well, all we can do now is pray. That just one of those things that just goes through me. As if now that I've done everything I can do, let's throw a coin in the wishing well. Let's just see if maybe we can find God, if maybe he's hanging around, if he's got anything he can do for us. As if that's the last ditch effort. And if you've said that and you, you know, that's part of your vernacular, I'm not trying to get on you tonight. That's, that's not the point of this. My point, rather, is instead of God being the last resort, 
Why isn't he the first? Why is it that we don't start off in prayer? Why is it that we wait until we've done everything else before we pray? I'm convinced the reason why we don't do that is the same thing that happened at my house a bunch of times growing up. Whenever me and my brother would fight, which was every day, and would end up breaking something, inevitably, what we would do is we would spend the next several hours trying to fix it ourselves. And sometimes we could. If it was a lamp or something, we could put it back together and glue it and try to hide the back side of it. But sometimes, whatever we broke was too bad and too big. And after we tried everything else, then we go tell Dad. And we go to him and say, all right, we can't fix this on our own. We've done everything we can do, but, you know, we're here to accept our punishment and figure out how we're going to fix this. And sometimes I think we do that, that we're so afraid of our own sins or our own indiscretions that we're afraid to ask God for help because we're afraid he's going to ask us questions about stuff we've been doing wrong. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is we just don't know what to say. Because we don't regularly talk to God, it's awkward, right? How do you start a prayer? How do you start a conversation with somebody you don't know? And so when calamity comes in life, we have a hard time reaching out to God because we had not been talking to him anyway. And then we're confused, we're upset, we're anxious, and we blame God for things. God, where were you when this happened? Why weren't you there? How, why haven't you taken care of me? You know why God wasn't there for some of the stuff that happens in life? Because we hadn't been talking to him. And we hadn't had him involved in our life. Now God's not far from any of us. But maybe he wasn't active in our lives because we've never invited him to. You know what I think about is that many of us have relationships in our life that are acquaintances. Right? We've got different levels of relationships that we have with people, and some of them are, are acquaintances. There are, you know, Facebook friends or, you know, people that we know enough to nod to in town, but they're not really a part of our lives, right? And you know what I never wonder about? I never wonder when I have a problem why Bob that I was in eighth grade science with doesn't help me. You know why? Because I haven't talked to Bob in 30 years. And I don't ever wonder why, when i got to move, Bob doesn't show up to help. Because I haven't talked to Bob in 30 years. I have no idea what he's doing. I have no idea whether he can even lift the other side of this couch. But I'm not surprised when Bob doesn't come. I kind of don't really expect him to. I also would find it very awkward if Bob called me tonight and wanted to talk about deep problems that he's got in his life. Because we don't really have a good relationship. I'm not really sure where to start trying to help you, Bob. Maybe catch me up on the last 30 years first, and then let's figure out what's wrong today. But friends, I'm convinced that that's why we struggle in our relationship with God is because we have the same relationship with God that I have with Bob. We know him. We talk to him at the gas station. But we really don't share a lot of things with him, right? He's an acquaintance. We know some stuff about him, 
I can pull up Bob's Facebook page and tell you where he lives and what he does for a living and all that stuff. Just like many of us can tell us a lot of things about God, but we really don't know him enough to have a relationship and we don't really talk to him. And so it becomes very awkward and it becomes very strained when we want to go and talk to God about deep, pressing things in our life. It becomes very awkward, it becomes very strained when we're struggling and we're hurting to call out to somebody that we don't really know. Let me ask this question a different way. If later on tonight or tomorrow morning, something extraordinarily good happened to you, something just fantastic happened to you, who do you call first? Second, third. I want you to think about that. Now I want to ask the same question on the other side. If something extraordinarily terrible happened to you, who do you call? Who do you talk to? Who do you want to know right away? And maybe as you make that list, it's your spouse or your parents or your kids, or your best friend, or a coworker. How many people do you go down that list for before God shows up? See in the top five? Top ten? I would bet for most of us that he's higher on the list of something bad happening than something good. Why? Why is God further down either one of those lists? I'm going to tell you it's the same reason Bob's far down my list. I don't really know him that well. I don't even know if he's going to care. You know, hey, I just got a raise this morning, got a huge promotion. I'm going to be running my division. Who is this again? We call the people that we believe are the most vested in our lives that care. That's why usually that call is to a spouse or maybe to your parents or to your kids or to a best friend because those are the people that are the most invested in your life. They care if something good happens. On the flip side, if something terrible happens, they're also the people most likely to help. If you wreck your car on the way to work, who's most likely to come and help you? Who's most likely to help get you out of it? But again, I'm going to press and say the reason why we don't talk to God about it is because he's far enough away from us, because we don't have a close enough relationship that we're not really convinced he's there to help. I know my wife will come get me, but I'm really not sure if God's going to be there or not. Granted, God may be the only reason you're alive. but it's relationships. It's how deeply invested are we in that relationship. And that's why the children of Israel fell into these cycles over and over again, because they forgot about God. They went going along in their lives and everything was great and they were making money and things were wonderful and they forgot that it was God that got them there. And they start crafting these little idols, right? These little stuff they made out of wood or metal or whatever and they... 
they put them on their shelves and they say, look, as long as I've had my good luck charm on the shelf, everything's been fine. Never mind that whole thing about us walking over the Red Sea and that monument we built there with Joshua. Never mind all that stuff. We're going to forget about that. We're going to give all the credit to the idol. But you and I do the same thing. Like we get mad about the children of Israel because they did that over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And from Genesis to Malachi, we're like, guys, it's the same story. But yet you and I do the exact same thing. But we don't make something out of wood, most of us, or have a, you know, maybe somebody's got a rabbit's foot. I don't know. But most of us, we move, we change what our idol looks like. My idol's my bank account, or my 401k, or the company that I work for, or my investments, or maybe even it's my family. But, but do you know the problem with when we, we make that what makes us successful? And when we say, as long as I have that, then everything's fine, is it's just like an idol. It works until it doesn't. And it's great that your company takes care of you until they decide to move to Mexico. And it's great that you've got this wonderful family before they let you down. And at some point, even the best of families, somebody's going to let you down and hurt your feelings. And it's great to think about the wealth or the assets or whatever, and they work until they don't. But what I want to tell you, friends, is our relationship has to be with someone who's eternal and not temporary. Because temporary things fail us. Right? None of us would get behind the wheel of a car with 300,000 miles on it and be upset if the serpentine belt broke, Right? Anybody kind of is like, hey, we made it that far, right? Once your car gets 150,000 miles on it, 200,000 miles on it, don't we start to look for things that go wrong? Hey, alternator's probably going to go out soon. Starter, serpentine belt, you know, probably need to change the brakes. There's, we, we go through all those things. Why? Because we know they're temporary, and we know at some point they're going to wear out. It's just a matter of time. But what we do in our own lives is we take all these temporary things that are wearing out and going away, and we get upset when they're gone. Because we treat them as if they're eternal. And we wonder why when these things break down because they were temporary and they were never meant to be eternal. We wonder why when they let us down, how could this have possibly happened? Friends, our faith and our confidence has to be in who we reach out to to guide us there. And the only one that can do that is someone that's never going to wear out. We have to pray. We have to talk to God about revival. And we have to talk to God about increasing our faith. We have to talk to God about getting stronger and getting better. Because that's how we advance. But the first step is we've got to build that relationship. And how do you build a relationship? So let's forget about God for a moment. And let's go back to your list of who you call when extraordinary things happen to you. Why is whoever you were going to call at the top of your list? Is it because they're easy to talk to? Is it because they know you? Is it because they're going to understand whatever happened? Is it because that they're invested in you and care about your outcome more so than anything else? Is, is that why? How'd they get there? How often do you talk to them? How much do they know about you and how much do you know about them? 
Friends, the key to all of this is communication. The more you talk to somebody, the more comfortable you are with them. The less you talk to them, the more awkward it is. And if you want any relationship to break down, stop talking. You want to know why marriages fail? At some point, you stop talking. That's why they fail. I've been doing marriage counseling for close to 20 years now. I can point to in every failed marriage when, they, when it began is when they stopped talking. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that you start ignoring each other. You stop talking about anything important. You start talking about the weather and I'm going to work. Well, so am I. And you start separating and you stop sharing your life together. And at that point, your marriage is beginning to end. Every single time. It's not, the marriage doesn't end at adultery. That, it was dying long before that. It ends when you stop communicating. So if you want to fix it, you've got to talk. You've got to let it out. You've got to share. You've got to be invested in one another's life. But friends, the same thing happens with God. You want to know why God doesn't feel present in your life? It's the last time you had a conversation with him. If you don't know how God feels about something, he's literally an open book. You want to know what God thinks about something? Ask him. You want to know how God feels about a certain situation? Ask him. It's right here. But if we're not listening to God... And we're not talking to God. We don't have a relationship with God. So when I tell you the way that we get better through the storms is when we talk to God about the storms and about how we can get better, that's real, real awkward if we don't have that relationship. So that's the first step. Is that we want this storm to make us better. God, help me increase my faith. Second, we have to understand that trials lead to revival. There is no progression without pain. It doesn't work that way. All of us want it to work that way, right? I'd love to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos for the rest of my life and be skinny. That math doesn't work. I tried it. It doesn't work that way. But we understand that when we go to the gym and we work out, we understand that when we make better choices and eat things that normally we feed to our food, we understand that all of doing that makes us better. That's how we get in shape. That's how our bodies get better. It's the trial. It is very hard to convince somebody to make changes in their life when everything's going fine, right? If you got a pocket full of change, good bank account, drive a nice car, got a good job, it's hard to talk to that person about making changes in their life. Now, talk to somebody that's in the middle of a trial, been through a divorce, had some addiction issues, lost a job, they're all ears. Because they know how bad things are. And they're all ears because they know every decision that they've made to that point had to have been wrong or they wouldn't be there. The trials are what allow us to reevaluate everything. We talk about people that hit rock bottom. At rock bottom, I'm all ears. When everything's going great, eh. 
You want to know why the Pharisees had trouble listening to Jesus? They were in the catbird seat. They didn't feel like anything was wrong. Now, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're all ears because their lives were a wreck. It's the trials that we go through that lead to revival. It's the pain that we go through that causes us to reevaluate everything. So when you have trials in life, when you have difficulty, that's the moment when you begin assess assessing everything. That's when you take stock. What led me here? And friends, if you live a lifestyle where you are a victim in everything, you're never going to get any better. I, I, I can't be more blunt about that. If nothing is ever your fault, then no matter what you would have done, it's always going to turn out the same way, right? But the moment when I can say, if I would have made this decision differently, the outcome would have been different, now I'm on to something. But if you're always a victim of circumstance, and the world's out to get you, and no matter what you would have done, you would still end up in the same place, friend, you're doomed to continue to repeat that cycle. And yes, are some bad things going to happen to you that are beyond your control? Absolutely. Would it be terrible if you're driving at 2 o'clock in the morning and get hit by a drunk driver? Absolutely. But do you know in that situation, maybe we think about why I was on the road at 2 o'clock in the morning and if I needed to be there or not? There are things that we can always reevaluate and say, hey, maybe if I'm a little more cautious, if I'm a little more astute, if I don't take unnecessary risks, if I don't put myself in a position of harm, maybe I have a better outcome. But we, until we go through the trial, until we go through the pain, none of us are going to do that. And that's, that's the brutal facts and the brutal reality. Now, don't get me wrong, you are 100% better if in a position of doing well, you can reassess everything and make sure that you're not making bad decisions that are going to lead to a future calamity? Absolutely, but most people just don't do that. We have to understand that the trial is what leads to the revival. The trial is what makes us better. So part of us finding calm in the chaos is embracing the fact that we're going to be better for it. Now again, we've got the benefit of history to know how all these things turn out for good. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I have no idea if God caused the pandemic to happen or allowed it to happen or if he sent us the clown politicians that we have in office right now or those that are running against them. Pick your poison. I have no idea if God's behind all of that. And if he's doing it because 70 years from now, we're going to be in a better place. I don't know any of that. I know it from Habakkuk's story, but I don't know that. But here's what I do know. He's still in control. And if he's in control and he can take Nebuchadnezzar and use that for good, I know he can do it with the boys we got in Washington. If he can take Nebuchadnezzar and the calamity of the destruction of the nation of Israel, what can he do with a pandemic? Friends, when I look at what God's already done, I'm convinced there's nothing that he can't do. So maybe 
the trials that we're going through now are all going to be for our good. But they're only going to be for our good for those that want it to be. There are a lot of people in Israel that never got any better. That stayed behind in Jerusalem and worked and plowed fields and never got better. But there was a remnant of God's people that did an influence change. You ever noticed in studying your Old Testament history, all the different pockets that the children of Israel were scattered to? Some were left behind, some were taken to Babylon, some further over the Medo-Persian Empire, some fled back into Egypt. You ever notice that God's people were protected but scattered? And you ever notice that when Jesus came at the fullness of time, those that were scattered also got the good news? And they were scattered and that's how the gospel spread? That while Rome was seeking to persecute and drive out the church, all they did was spread the fire all over the world? You ever notice that there's always been a remnant and God's cause is always furthered even when people are trying to destroy him? You see, the trials are what lead us to where we need to be. And you know why? Something we talked about this morning. God's desire in all things is to save us. How does Peter put it? God is not slow, as some men count slackness, but patient, wishing all men everywhere to repent. God gave Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity to repent. I want that to sink in for you. The guy that led this destruction, that his own God was his sword and himself. Listen to the things that are talked about in the book of Habakkuk about who Nebuchadnezzar was. And yet, he got an opportunity to see who God was and to make a decision about that. Even the enemies of God have an opportunity to repent. So what's that say about good old boys like us that are trying to do good? Do you think we're going to have every opportunity in the world to get there? God wants to save the Hitlers and the Maos and the Stalins of the world. He wants to save whoever you hate the most on the other side of the party. God wants to save everybody. And so if I put all of these things together, and I understand that that first, I need to have a relationship and open communication and open lines with God so that He's involved in my life and He can help me be better. And I understand that part of being better is the trials that I go through. And then I put that with the fact that God wants these trials to make me better. Can we have peace that nobody else understands? I think so. I think when I put the logic together of What I'm missing the most is probably the open lines of communication with my God. Because this other stuff that's happening is all to my benefit. I just probably don't know it. Parents, you ever had this argument with your kid? 
when you're trying to do something for their own good and they throw a fit about it? I, I don't know if I've talked about it here or not, but one of my favorite guilty pleasures is watching YouTube videos of parents that are explaining why they're bad parents. Have you ever seen any of these? The kid is throwing a fit, full out crying in the middle of the floor, and the parent puts the caption up there, she's mad because she can't play with the light socket. Child's mad because they can't run out in traffic and they're just having a full-blown meltdown and this is why I'm a bad parent. I, I look at those things and I laugh because it's happened at my house. But also, because I think that's got to be how God looks at us. Is look at all these things I'm doing to protect you, to guide you, to make you better. And you're throwing a fit like a spoiled kid. If you only knew that I'm protecting you by keeping you here, by moving you to this place, that I'm active and involved in your life, you just don't, don't want to pay attention to the fact that I'm there. And here you are throwing a fit because you haven't talked to me about it where I can explain it to you. Friends, when we talk about these things from the pulpit academically, they're real, real simple. You know what the hard part about it is? Actually doing it. It's easy academically for all of you to sit here and take notes and for me to say from the pulpit, hey, here's the steps and here's all the things you want to do. These things are simple, but they're not easy. They're brutal to do because it changes everything that we've always done. And tomorrow we've got to start putting these things into place. The beauty of the plan of salvation, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's word is all of it is very, very simple. The difficult thing is it's hard to put into practice. It's hard for us to take that first step. But I'll tell you, the second step's easier than the first, and the fifth's easier than the second. That if we start down this path, and we change the way we think, and we change the way we look, and we change the way we react, it'll become habit. It'll become just part of who we are. And we're going to start to look different than the rest of the world. And we're going to feel different from the rest of the world. And when the rest of the world goes bananas in the chaos, and we're calm, and we're peaceful because we get it, they're going to look at us and start saying the same thing the jailer did. I want that. I don't know what it is, but I want it. Because I don't like how I feel. I want to feel like that. That's how our light shines in the world. That's why we're salt. That's why we change the things around us. But we can't change the people around us if we look and act just like they do. Unless we're different, then we're the same. Unless we view things differently and react differently and act differently, then we're going to be the same. So friends, let's start this walk together if, you, if you're not already there. I just want to introduce you to God. I want you to get to know him. I want you to have some open, honest dialogue with him. As I said before, he's an open book. And he'll tell you everything you want to know. But the hard part is when we've got to reach in and start telling him everything that he already knows. We've got to start confessing who we really are. Putting words to our fears and our guilt and our anxiety and our worry. But we tell him because he loves us and because he wants to hear it. And we tell him because he wants to help.
because He wants to save us. And if we'll start that conversation and we'll start building that relationship with God, we'll learn to trust Him just like we trust that first phone number we call when extraordinary things happen in our lives. And we'll love Him because He loved us when we were unlovable. And we'll turn away from everything that we've tried before. And we'll embrace His Son as the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll be willing to give up everything and treat it as rubbish to know Him, to suffer with Him, to die in His likeness, that we may be found in the resurrection. And we'll live a life the way He lived it, selfless, looking to help those that are hurting, wanting them to feel the way that we feel. And that is full of hope instead of hopeless. And this diagram I've got behind me is a corkscrew. The more times we go around it, the closer and closer we get to God. And the more and more we learn, the more and more we trust, the deeper and deeper we love, the easier it is to get rid of all the cares of the world. And the more and more we'll become selfless. If you're not a child of God, all things are ready tonight to get you started on that path. But if you are a child of God, but you don't feel the hope that we've talked about, the communication is lacking in your life. God feels like a stranger. Let's fix that tonight. Let us pray with you and for you. If you need encouragement, let us encourage you. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Take the first step. It's the hardest while we stand and while we sing.